I read it every week, and I think it's an absolute necessity here in London for the Irish. It keeps the Irish people in touch with one another and with what's happening in Ireland too. Up in Kilburn, I have friends, and no, one of them would do without it. And um, I have other friends in Fulham, they buy it regularly as well. And quite a number of the girls in the place I'm staying by. In its present form, I think you would nearly have to kind of scrap it and start again to, to improve it. But as it is now, it's, it's serving a purpose. I think it's a very commercialised paper, especially commercialised that it just advertises bands, advertises functions, contractors and whatnot. It just doesn't give enough of information to the Irish people in London. Not yet enough of the facts of who's in trouble and who's not in trouble, who's making money and who's losing money and whatnot, who's sick and who's not sick and old ladies in trouble, where are they, whatnot, all this kind of stuff. We should be reading about it. We're not. We don't hear a damn thing about it. This is what I think. So I think it's a heap of rubbish to want to buck it up and make some kind of a proper newspaper out of it. The voices of some of the Irish in Britain talking about the newspaper that likes to call itself the voice of the Irish in Britain. Launched in February of 1970, the Irish Post is a lively weekly newspaper for and about the Irish in Britain. Produced in London, it has a circulation of over 70,000 and is set to be read by almost 400,000 people every week. It's a paper which keeps its finger close to the pulse of the three million Irish in Britain and probably more accurately than most reflects their hopes, their aspirations and their ambitions. Well, I was... Um came to Britain in 1955 and shortly after that realised that there was no means of um, communication between the Irish here. Um, the idea evolved from there that there should be some form of communication, uh, perhaps a newspaper. And um, at that time, of course, I was studying uh, for my final accountancy examinations and um, the newspaper idea was very much in the background but after qualifying and after setting up in practice I again started to think about this idea of a newspaper and um, over a few years tossed the idea to various people to get their comments nobody um, knocked it, everybody thought it would be a very good idea. Um, finally, I met Brendan McLeur, and at that point, uh, the idea became more, uh, more than that. We sat down, we tried to figure out what was needed, uh, tried to figure out how to go about getting what was needed, and uh, it sort of went on from there. The pre-publication days were very, very difficult because we didn't know exactly what we wanted. We didn't know what the people wanted and uh, we were very much in the dark. Tony Beatty, the Waterford accountant who, with Clareman Brendan McLua, helped launch the Irish Post in Britain. There had been a number of earlier attempts to establish a paper for the Irish in Britain and a number of smaller publications had survived for a short time. But by the 1950s, all of them had folded. Then, in 1970, the Irish Post hit the newsstands. 
Well, the post, interestingly enough, almost failed in the beginning too. Um, and had it, it would have been my fault because um, I was living in Ireland, had never lived in Britain, and had all the misconceptions which most people in Ireland have about the Irish and Britain. I brought those misconceptions to the Irish Post and proceeded on the basis of those misconceptions. And certainly in the first year, the paper was not a thriving success. And it only became a success when I moved home and um, began to live in Britain and had children going to school here and was of the Irish in Britain myself. It was only then that I, as an editor of the paper, was valid of myself and was of the Irish Britain. It was at that point that the paper took off. Are you suggesting that the newspaper you were putting together, that you were presenting to the Irish in Britain for that first year, wasn't really relevant to them? I would say, to simplify it, uh, without going into tremendous details and saying why isn't the wherefore, the basic thing was that I suffered from the misconceptions, the natural misconceptions, of somebody living in Ireland and the presumptions that somebody living in Ireland has, and most people in Ireland still have, about the Irish and Britain. It is a, a total oversimplification. It is a conception which fails to take into account that virtually all the Irish and Britain have been in Britain all their adult lives. So they came here in their late teens, the vast majority of them. And the average Irish person in Britain is now in Britain and was in 1970 when we started the paper for longer than he has lived in Ireland or she has lived in Ireland. A majority of Irish people in Britain are married to somebody born in Britain. And in most instances, that means a Briton, not necessarily somebody of Irish descent. And that the Irish people in Britain are not the people who left Bailey Wadshire in 1953. They may look the same, they may even sound the same, but they have lived abroad for longer they have lived in Ireland. And until one took cognizance of that, until one understood that, until one entered into the psyche of the Irish in Britain, then the Irish Post was off course. And it was only when oneself began to live in Britain and was of the Irish in Britain that the paper came on course. Looked at from the perspective of the quayside at Dunlera or the North Wall in Dublin, the three million Irish in Britain are often regarded as exiles, just waiting for the first boat to take them back home. As Brendan McLuhan points out, but very often they see themselves in an entirely different light. There are, of course, some who would like to come home, but the vast majority of them have now made up their minds to live in places like London, Manchester, Birmingham or Coventry, and they see themselves not so much as exiles, but as the Irish in Britain. For the past seven years, the Irish Post has, as sociologist Father Terry French explains, been the newspaper which, on the one hand, has helped shape their opinions and, at the same time, express their emerging philosophy. I like the Irish Post... At the beginning, I had much reservations about it. It has a very interesting editor. He's always putting these issues, putting the deep issues, before the minds of its readers. Can we have a dual allegiance? Can we have a dual allegiance to Ireland and to Britain? Where do we stand on irresponsible things like terrorism? Are we playing our part? Are we the Irish priests and the Irish Catholics allow the press here to say things in our name. These questions, I think, would never have come to the fore as much except for uh, the presence of the Irish Post. And I think a lot of the strides that are taking place in the Irish community here 
in what I would say very positive integration is being helped by the presence of an Irish paper which has such a strong readership. Maybe not so much in the number of uh, issues being sold, but by the number that read it. There's something in the Irish Post for every one of the family, be it the discos, the, the pop scene, the ads, the advertisement, the things about Ireland, the job, vacancies, as long as the general content in so many of the articles. So here is a paper which we, the Catholic Church, have always failed here. Here we have a paper that embraces every, every one of the family. And one of the troubles that the Irish Post are having is that too many people, too many people read each of its issues. They say that about 12 people read every issue of the Irish Post, where only about three people e read every issue of the Daily Mirror or the Daily Express, or probably two people only read the Sunday Observer. Another man who was very enthusiastic about the launching of the Irish Post at the beginning of the 70s was London chaplain Father Eamon Casey. Today he is, of course, Bishop Eamon Casey of Galway, and meeting him in London just before the Christmas, he talked of his interest in and the importance of the paper at that time. In fact, I can remember it was only at the end of my time, in fact, that the post came into being. I'm back home now in Ireland eight years. And I can well, you know, remember the feeling I had that at long last we had something that would keep us in contact with one another and that would, that would enable us to understand what our common problems and our common needs were. And equally, I felt also, that would keep, kind of, because I felt that a number of them would go back to Ireland, would keep Ireland aware of the kind of development in the Irish community in Britain. So that certainly I can say that at the end of my 10 years here, that the coming of the Irish Post, I was just here for a year while it was on, uh, being underway, that I certainly felt that it gave a very great service the Irish community and I think helped them to have a great sense of solidarity as well and a great sense of awareness of the common problems that they had and actually it's only a short time ago now and I admit this I didn't in fact do it but I can remember within the last few months making the decision to send uh, a subscription to the Irish Post to ask them to send it to me because I felt and I think this proves what I mean by saying that it was a service I felt it would keep me in contact with the movements and with the whole situation in the Irish in Britain. And so, I mean, if, if, if I felt that it would do that for me back in Galway and keep me in, in contact with the trends and the, the difficulties and the problems and the developments and so forth of, of the Irish community, I think that in itself says how convinced I was that is a very important factor in the Irish community. And in the early days, you were very conscious of the need for something that would bridge the gap between the various Irish communities in London, in Birmingham, in Manchester, throughout Britain. Unquestionably. I, I, I think that, that although we often spoke about the million, million and a quarter, second generation Irish, I think there was very, very little effective contact between them. A certain amount of it accrued through Irish societies in the different cities meeting now and again and having annual general meetings and this kind of thing, but it wasn't very deep. And I felt that uh, a paper like the Irish Post, which devoted itself, you know, to the developments, to the, the, the not just the problems, I'm always using that word and I don't mean it in that sense really, uh, to, to the way of life, to, to what was happening within the Irish community, to highlighting how it was being integrated into the, and the contribution that it was making. It, I, I think it gave a great sense of kind of confidence and solidarity that was very important to the Irish community. The Irish Post, with a splash of emerald green on its masthead 
is a 22-24-page tabloid which hits the streets on Thursdays. In Britain, it costs 10 pence. Here in Ireland, you can buy it on Fridays, but there's an extra penny tax. In style, it has more in common with some of the brighter English weekly or evening newspapers than any Irish paper. The presentation is snappy, the subbing is tight, and there are plenty of eye-catching pictures. The main emphasis is on the doings of the Irish in Britain, but there's also some news from home. There's Frank Dolan's hard-hitting comment column and a somewhat more tongue-in-cheek page from the pen of Finn McCool. Kohaluk in name, maybe, but certainly not in nature. Essentially, it's about the Irish in Britain, naturally. There are many, many newspapers catering for the Irish in Ireland, 100 and something, which include weeklies, dailies. Uh, the Irish Post is the only paper catering exclusively for the Irish in Britain, so the paper is mostly about what the Irish in Britain are doing and providing news on the Irish scene, both individually and community-wise, for the previous week. It also provides a synopsis of news from Ireland in digested form, and it also provides a vehicle for advertising. Uh, just to mention one area, the, the entertainment scene. I mean, it's, it's, it's a valid area. Again, the entertainment is part of the community. Some of that entertaining is cultural entertainment. And, again, it's a dissemination of information relevant to a community as, you know, might a provincial paper in a county area, except that it's on a much larger and diverse scale. And in its um, style, its presentation and its content, how would you compare it with any of the Irish newspapers, the British newspapers? Well, we're tabloid. Um, one doesn't want to sort of start naming other newspapers uh, and say that we're like this or like that. We're probably not totally like any paper, but it's it's a middle market tabloid newspaper. It's not like the popular newspaper. It's somewhere, if one is familiar with English papers, in the area of the Daily Mail, uh, London Evening Standard. A serious, or medium serious, tabloid newspaper. Meeting the Irish in Britain, you get many differing reactions to the paper. I have nothing but admiration for the Irish Post and its editors because right from the very start they provided us for the first time with our own newspaper in this country and to be fair to them I think they cover it very well and very fairly. Personally I, I'd leave it behind me more times than, than enough. I'd rather buy the Mirror or buy the Irish papers. I think it's very good and it's not really rubbish, it's quite truthful. But, uh, it's very genuine and it's not misleading in any way. Like most newspapers, the Post devotes its back page to sport. That, in effect, means to Gaelic games, hurling and football mostly. There are reports of the big matches here in Ireland and of club and county games in Britain, but it seems there's a considerable amount of dissatisfaction with the paper's coverage of Gaelic games. High ball to the centre of the field, fielded well by John O'Keefe, tipped in Joe Crowley, DJ going through with it now, a typical DJ run, he's on the 14-yard line, he takes a shot on that set, that's in the head. Truly, Jim, I've been very dissatisfied all through the years with the coverage the Irish Post gives the Gaelic Games of Britain, because in my capacity as chairman of the St Gabriel's Hurling Club and involved with the London County team, if I had a genuine complaint regarding London hurling or regarding the selection of hurlers for the London County team, also as the way the county board is run in certain aspects of uh, finances and of coverage of the games in New Eltham, I know that 
if I went genuinely to the editor of the Post, I know that he wouldn't print what I want to say. What about the extent of the coverage? Are you, you satisfied with the amount of space that's devoted to Gaelic games in the paper? No, I'm not um, satisfied with the amount of space. We get a small column in the back page, and I know for a fact that if there was an an over elaborate coverage of adverts, and that's regarding of a small night in a pub of a Tuesday night, that would get priority to our games in New Eltham. I say this with regret, as somebody who's had a long identification with the GA. The total attendance at GA games in Britain uh, is very, very small. The biggest attendance this year in these British-controlled islands at a GA match was in Jersey two or three weeks ago, in the Channel Islands. Nearly 3,000 people turned out for a match. But the average county final in Britain, London, eight or 900. The attendance, for example, at the major game in Britain this year, which was Galway versus Mayo, on which Monday was 2,000. And that was the Galway, a uh, big part of the Mayo versus Cork, senior football teams would come over from Ireland. Um, so GA in Britain has finished up something like club rugby in Ireland, intense involvement by players, but little or no crowd appeal. So attendance, I mean, you can get a, a major GA game in Britain with 50 people at it. I mean, the, the players intensely involved, the club officials intensely involved, and 50, 50 spectators. Well, if the editor says that, the true fact is, does the editor go out to New Eltham to see the involvement of the people who travel 40 and 50 miles to go out and see the game. I know for a fact that in the replays of our game this year with the Brian Burroughs, when people travel down from Coventry Sunday after Sunday to see those games, and I know for truly that if you know this man was involved in the games here, like people like we are involved in it, that then he would give at least the back page to the Gaelic games in London. Is it true to say that some of these games wouldn't attract more than 80, 100 or 200 spectators? Well, that's ridiculous, because I've been at a county board meeting no less than two months ago when a delegate stood up and he said, please don't mention the amount of people that was at that game on last Sunday in case people in Dublin would think the amount of money that we are getting at the gate. In actual fact, I know that 3,000 people were, were at one of the replays in London, and I can tell you something, that there are a lot of four division teams playing down in Kent and in outside London, even Fulham, a top soccer team are complaining about their gates and I know that the gates in New Eltham outstay the four division gates to get here in the soccer league. Cána Ella a chrithrile an Irish post gymunic nána hwyl eridis frige da gweilge on agus wulmwyd le gulior dinier waliob colon gweilge a vehan gyfrig wil pobelmach liehori gweilge samratin. I myself would would look forward very much to a column in Irish. I speak Irish, I know Irish, I read Irish, and I would look forward very much to uh, a little column in Irish. But the, again, I think the Irish Post could only give small space to that because they must cater for their readers. Well, a good she asked it, now will call on the Taisha Sabo Perinish. Massam Gor Wahan Rude, Gomach Kalam Engoelge, is an Irish post. Nivailon on a Mechanon, 
an Karl Meier ach Maschinen hier in Maschen gemacht gemacht da macht Karl Mann when we started we had Donald Macaulay who is the most distinguished Irish language author living in Britain writing a column and it became an embarrassment to both of us because of its numerous typographical errors it is a major problem to confront printers uh, in another country with a language which they can't in any way understand. They have to typeset, proofread, read, carry out the corrections, etc. in it. And um, one tried various ways of doing it. Um, but technically, it um, continued to produce this high quota of typographical errors uh, to an unacceptable level, both to myself and to Donald Macaulay. So we reluctantly abandoned the column and um, have since devoted ourselves to something which has been perhaps a lot more fruitful. The propagation of language tuition and the propagation of an appreciation of language, doing that through English. And we have succeeded at the point now where there's more Irish language activity in Britain than there has ever been, even back in the days of Michael Collins and P.S. O'Hagerty and Fanon McCollum and the halcyon days of the London Gaelic League. We now have Irish language tuition going from... Um, Glasgow down to, um, to Portsmouth. I'm not saying the Irish Post initiated all of that, but certainly it propagated much of it and uh, stimulated and assisted much of it. And uh, this is something marvellous and has taken place within the last two years. And um, an Irish language column would facilitate those who have Irish. I think that one is doing something much more constructive now in propagating the language among those who previously didn't have it. Another aspect of this, of course, is um, the growth of um, another facet of Irish culture which I haven't referred to. That's um, traditional music. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that uh, the spread of cultus and the establishment of cultus in Britain was brought about by the Irish Post. It was established before the Irish Post. But we have certainly propagated it, and uh, any person involved in cultus in Britain will uh, um, attribute to the Irish Post an aspect of the success, at least. But the situation has been in latter years that children born in Britain, youngsters, 10, 11, 12, 15, and so on, go to the All Ireland Fla in Britain, in Ireland every year, and come back with 10, 20, 30 uh, All Ireland titles. There are towns like Luton here that have a richness of Irish traditional music unmatched in any town in Ireland. And that's an irrefutable statement. I mean, Luton won, I don't know, six, seven All Ireland titles children born in Britain. Now, we constantly propagate that by featuring these children, by highlighting them as if they had won All-Ireland, as Kerry might, it's All-Ireland winning Kerry team. Uh, those children we um, project as, as, as local heroes, and that's a great stimulation for them. Similarly, in the area of Irish dancing, again, it might surprise people in Ireland that there are actually more Irish dancing schools and more fashion now held in Britain than there are in Ireland. Regardless of its cultural or sociological importance, 
no newspaper could survive very long unless it was making money. And although the joint owners of the Irish Post, Tony Beatty and Brendan McLua, aren't prepared to say how profitable the paper is, it almost certainly is doing very well. With a ready market amongst the Irish communities up and down the country, a streamlined distribution system, a small staff and relatively low overheads. Well, we made it, I suppose, against the tide, really, at a time when Fleet Street was contracting. We had a go, and uh, one would say that it's a very successful paper now. In fact, one would say it's a very successful story, the Irish Post, in every way. A very profitable paper? Well, you read into it your own thing, but uh, I'm using the word successful. And to be successful, I'm an accountant, obviously, and I don't talk about successful things unless they're uh, at least breaking even, shall we say. (laughs) You're not willing to give away any of the the secrets of the balance sheet of the profit and loss account? Well, an accountant, of course, is like a priest in confession. We can't uh, talk uh, about clients or about affairs like that, so you'll have to read uh, into it what you think yourself. Quite honestly, it's not worth buying. There's not enough of news in it for... Irish people. But I mean, you have to be either a pub goer, going to dances for the younger generation and whatnot, but there's just not enough news in it. Papers are for news, aren't they? We don't get enough news from home. We don't want to hear no. where such a band is playing. We don't want, we're not interested in them. But we would love to know what's happening at home. If, if they did a paper and say, we're going to do a third, you know, that there was a 32-county edition on that paper. It would be marvellous. And we'd, each page kind of said, well, may all go win such and such. We read through it. it that would be marvellous. We're not really interested where the bands are playing in such a pub and such a pub in London, which gig is great. We can get that here ourselves. We want to know what's happening at home. There's not enough of information. I'd prefer to pay another 10 pence for the paper and give us a little bit about every county, the progress of it and everything else. There is certain areas where the Irish Independent is, is uh, advertised and this, where the Irish Independent is advertised, the Irish Times is advertised. You can go into an ordinary English shop here where you get the Daily Telegraph, you can also get the Irish Times. You know, uh, I think that it's, there's no use in having the Irish, uh, the Irish Post in a background shop where it's a few, other, a few editions hung out on a, on a, on a, on a post road. I think to sell, to sell something, you've got to go to the people. And you can't go to the people in the back street. You've got to be on the main street to sell anything. If you're going to, no matter what you're going to sell, you must be out on the forefront and sell it. And I think this is where the Irish Post has got to do. This is what the Irish Post has got to do. They've got to go out. They've got to sell themselves. And I think not only just to the Irish people, but I think they'll sell themselves to a great cross-section of the general public. I mean, you've only got to take the, the success of, of the Sunday world, which my wife religiously reads like the Bible. <laughs> I don't know what she does this far, but she religiously reads it. It is a paper that goes out to the people. It catches the imagination of the people. Uh, you, you go in and you can read it, and you get enjoyment and satisfaction. You get the very same thing out of the Irish Post if the Irish Post were prepared not to take their little stands off the back streets, off the Indian shops, and bring it out to the people who really who really reads it, the Irish people. Are, are you suggesting in some way then that it is a ghetto newspaper and that it should get out of the ghetto mentality? Yes, I think it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, we are the paper of the Irish and Britain. That's fact. But we are not um, a ghetto newspaper in the context, I think, of what you're, ty- you're saying our critics talk about. I think you can't be all things to everybody. And we, I don't think, if we try to do that, I suppose we get to an early grave.
it's just not possible. Um, we try to bring out a, a sensible, reasonable paper that most people will find something of interest in. And I think we've succeeded in doing that. You don't see yourselves at all as uh, cashing in on the shamrocks and shillelagh sentimentality amongst the Irish in Britain? Well, I think the shamrock shillelagh sentimentality is something put on the Irish abroad by the Irish at home. I don't think that uh, it is a fact at all, and certainly in my 20-odd years here, I've never really come across this, uh, I think, Kamali sort of a uh, thing. Um, but when I go home, I still find people think of us as the poor devils who had to go away. And that, in fact, we did. Most of us were poor devils who had to go away, but um, a lot of us sort of got down to the job of living and did something with life. And here we are. At least three quarters of the articles in the Post relate directly to the activities of the Irish in Britain. And in spite of the criticisms you hear, the paper does seem to do its best to include news from the various groups and organisations up and down the country from the north of Scotland to South Wales. However, one of the major criticisms of its coverage and its editorial policy is that it often turns a blind eye to the less attractive activities of the Irish in the UK and that it rarely highlights or investigates the exploitation of the Irish in Britain. For instance, the alleged exploitation of young girls in the hotel industry and the alleged exploitation of young men fresh from Ireland on the building sites. And then there are the allegations that the Irish themselves very often exploit their own countrymen in Britain. Critics of the Post say that you read very little about this in the paper, and they say it's a great pity that things like the abuses of the lump on building sites were never fully investigated by the Post. The lump was a major factor in the 50s, and it's a story unto itself. It had its good and its bad. There are many large and multi-million companies in Britain today which grew out of the lump. There are also many, many instances of exploitation of Irish people by Irish people in the name of the lump. But the lump was a fading factor by the time the Irish Post came into existence in February 1970. And British government legislation in a succession of finance acts since has greatly curtailed it. It is, not, it is no longer a major social or sociological factor Another point I would throw in, and that is the, one of the many misconceptions about the Irish Britain, only 7% of the Irish Britain are involved in building trade. But you don't accept the point, then, that the Irish Post has been soft on the Irish, that it hasn't turned the harsh spotlight of publicity on them when they have been into something which is, was basically regarded by the British as illegal. Wrong. One isn't here to do a job for anybody other than the Irish Britain. Uh, one's total loyalty is to the Irish and Britain. One doesn't, to use a cliche, and it's not a, I don't use it in a political sense, one doesn't fell and set anybody for anybody. But if it were a factor detrimental to the Irish community itself, then the Irish Post would expose it, come hell or high water. Do you see yourselves as a good news newspaper in the sense that Erskine Childers once used that phrase? I mean, harping back to that point again, you don't see very many stories in the Post about the destitute Irish sleeping at rough in London. You don't see very many stories about the thousands of Irish girls who come here for abortions each year. Well, we certainly have reported both. There is no point in doing it ad nauseum. Um, you don't see a lot of stories in the Irish national press about social shortcomings in Ireland. They are highlighted when a survey repeats 
what is already known. We do that, but we're not going to running around every week pointing out that, incidentally, virtually all of the abortions are people who come from the Republic to have them here. That's not our area of accountability. Much of the social problems of Britain today are social problems which come on the boat and thrust themselves. The Irish community has got itself together for quite a good many years and does not, to any extent now, produce social problems. Social problems are social problems exported from the public and dropped on the doorstep of organizations like the Irish Centre in Camden, which valiantly seeks to contend with them. If you look at the annual report of the Irish Centre in Camden, it is in the main now dealing with problem cases, and very serious problem cases, which didn't exist in the 50s and 60s. Social problems of a kind which are relative to social pressures of the 70s. That's the scene, and um, it, isn't, it, hasn't, it isn't of the Irish and Britain. But you won't accept that the Irish Post is turning a blind eye on these problems, blind eye to these problems, rather. No, I would suggest that the Irish in Ireland, who export all their social problems, or most of them here, and just turning a blind eye, they are acting Baurilera, they're also applying a deaf ear. The, the, the girl who gets uh, pregnant, or the chap who has come out of a, a mental hospital in, 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 in West Kerry, and on whom pressure is put in his own family to come to Britain, is not a product of the Irish in Britain. It isn't the job of the Irish Post to be down with the boats photographing girls who come to Britain for abortions. It is the job of Irish society, and by that of society in Ireland, to examine its conscience and try and establish why it exports nowadays so many of its social problems, serious social problems, to Britain, and then washes its hands of them. The paper's editorial policy is something you also find widely differing views on. In the early 70s, for instance, it adopted a fairly hardline attitude on Northern Ireland, a view which, at the time, would certainly seem to have been shared by many of its readers. I look forward uh, a good deal to the editorial policy of the Irish Post, which I sometimes disagree with, but in general I'm in agreement with. It is Irish, it is national, and therefore it appeals to me. And uh, they do take a very uh, Irish line on most things. They criticise Irish politicians, Irish governments, and uh, they uh, promote or try to promote the interests of the Irish in Britain, which I think they are correct in saying are greatly neglected by the uh, Irish people at home in general and especially by the Irish government. But more recently, after eight years of bloodshed, not only in the North and in the Republic, but in Britain too, the editorials seem to have mellowed. The Post still concerns itself with Northern Ireland, but the leaders aren't as shrill, aren't as strident as they used to be in the days before the bomb and the bullet devastated not only Dublin and Belfast, but London and Aldershot too. I think the biggest thing you see, or I see about the Irish Post, is, is the growth and I mean psychological maturing growth of its editorial staff, that they themselves were like me. I, I came to England the week that the Irish Post first appeared, 
So I, I have been linked, my time, seven years here in England, have been linked very much with it. And I've noticed an improvement all, all, all along. First, the Irish Post was giving out a lot of things that an Irish person in, in, an Irish person in Ireland would like to say to the Irish in England. But now, as I read it every day, it's coming out from the eyes of a person who's living here in this country, who's happy to be living here in this country, who has become very integrated in this country. And in this way, it is uh, giving out a very responsible attitude uh, to, or rather, I was right, a very congruent attitude. It's really giving out the guts of the editorial staff. It's really giving out its soul to the readers. Was there a hint there that uh, it wasn't always that responsible, that in the beginning it equivocated a good deal as to its position on, on the troubles in the North? Well, I suppose if you press me with the question, uh, that's the way I was seeing it, all right. But um, I'd rather, I rather think that it was uh, the edit editors of the Irish Post not being off fay enough with the pulse of Irish of the Irish community in Britain, or I may say the pulse of the English community in Britain. Of course, we have adjusted to the situation, learning from it. But then, as I say, hasn't everybody? Is there an editorial line anywhere that hasn't changed? I can read the editorials in Ireland in 1970, the speeches of ministers in 1970, recall the actions of ministers in 1970, and look at some of the same people now. I think we have maintained a general consistency, and it would be based on... Again, let me carefully choose my words. It would be based on a familiarity with the British, with Britain, with the British psyche, which people living in Ireland generally do not possess. I'm not speaking for myself, but when I say that somebody living in Britain, working among the British people, succeeding in his dealings with them, and um, functioning to a high level of capacity here, that person may find it difficult to understand, and that person may be critical of a lack of equal effectiveness in Irish political dealings with Britain, if you follow my line. So therefore there would be a tendency to criticise Irish government performance, because if the Irish and Britain and they have handled their British colleagues effectively, if they have succeeded in whatever personal dealings they have with them, without prevarication maybe, if they have found what they consider to be the means of effectively coexisting, living, dealing with and debating and arguing with British people, then they find it uh, at times irritating that their country's government does not show the same form of incisiveness which they themselves possess. So there you have it, the Irish Post, the voice of the Irish in Britain, a paper still very young in years when viewed against the venerable old giants of Fleet Street, but which is nevertheless rapidly gaining in stature and influence. It's a paper which has undoubtedly been able to bridge the gaps, not only between the Irish in London, Glasgow and Birmingham, but also between the Mayo-born labourer on the building site 
and his neighbour's son, who is now reading history at Oxford. And the Irish Post is also a paper which is determined, despite its critics, to give both of them a new and a concrete philosophy. We have a very, very, very um, interesting, sociologically interesting area ahead of us. And that is not the million Irish-born who are here, but there are two million children. Every previous generation of Irish in Britain vanished without trace. See, the Irish have been coming here since the 12th century, and every previous generation vanished and left not a stone to mark them. You can't even find their graves. But this generation, and this is what I suppose the Irish Post has most contributed to, has set up structures which will last from one end of Britain, the island of Britain, to the other end. We now have a chain of clubs owned by the community, all thriving, all making money. We have a newspaper, we have a whole cultural structure. We have a thousand, more than a thousand, Irish community organisations. And we have physical things, newspapers physical, buildings are physical. And whereas it's abstract, in many ways it's the most important thing of all. We have a philosophy, this, this philosophy of being Irish in Britain. That is going to survive. That we are carrying through to the next generation. There will, and there is evolving, a generation which was born in Britain and which will be Irish in Britain. And that never happened before. Somebody said of Moroccan Begin that he will be the last Jewish Prime Minister of Israel because his successor will be an Israeli. I put it to you something like that. That there's a generation evolving, already born, but growing into manhood in Britain. Not all of whom, of course, but many of whom will be Irish in Britain. And that never previously existed. But the structures are there now. The facility is there now, the philosophy is there now, and the, back to the word again, the Ochtach is there now to be Irish in Britain from one generation to another, and by God this generation will not, like its predecessors, vanish without trace. Pretty substantial increase in the means test uh, for those who would be eligible. Are you considering a further increase in that means test? Well, uh, when we published the manifesto, of course, there had been no change in the eligibility limits uh, over a period, as we said in the manifesto, of 100% inflation. There has been a, a change since then, and of course we look at the new situation. Education Minister John Wilson and some words of comfort for the students now on the streets. There's been a general welcome in Galway for the government's reported decision to buy the local salmon fishery. But, according to the Galway and Darren Fishermen's Association, the price, a quarter of a million pounds, is exorbitant. The Association Secretary, Brian Casburn, has been telling Jim Fay why. It's exorbitant from the point of view that we negotiated with uh, Cahill and Young through John Barber a year and a half ago, 
and the asking price at that time was £100,000. Uh, to find that the figure has suddenly jumped up to a quarter of a million pounds is unexplainable. Uh, we at that time closely went through the uh, economics of buying the fishery and uh, the values of present landings of fish and one thing and another, and we decided that the going market rate price for the fishery was something in the region of 110, 120,000. Now, this was based on the market values of fish. The, the uh, gamble which we would have to take uh, for fear that the salmon should become a non-existence, uh, non-entity, and also the long period in time which we'd have to wait for to get the uh, return on our investment. Now, we had in mind at that time getting a return on our, our investment by uh, two things, mainly, number one, by way of opening up the rod and line fishing to tourists. This, we feel, has never been properly exploited uh, on that stretch of river. Uh, number two, we, we thought that we could uh, develop and enlarge on the eel fishing, which also has not been developed properly and felt that our investment would be protected by these two main spheres and that the uh, cribs, in our opinion, should have been taken out to give free access to the salmon to go and spawn in the natural environment. But do you think it would be worthwhile for the state to pay a quarter of a million pounds for the fishery to take it over at that price and to develop it? I think somebody's been conned into this. I don't know who negotiated with Catalan Young. I don't blame Catalan Young one bit, but if we could negotiate a figure of 110, 120,000 maximum, well, I'm sure the state could have done just as well as we have. But the company wasn't willing to sell the fishery to you at that price? Uh, we were negotiating at that time. I, I'd have thought that with a little bit more pressure, we could have probably have sewn it up. But uh, particularly w in view of the fact that, of the, fact that this is uh, the run of salmon this last year has been very low, these figures can be substantiated by the department. Well, then do you think it's, it's worthwhile for the state to take the fishery over at all? Oh, we welcome the state to, to see the state taking over the uh, fishery, but uh, at, at, at what a cost? Uh, why suddenly jump in and, and, and have to pay such an exorbitant price? You know, th this is something that our members cannot understand. And the general reaction in Galway this morning to the news that the, the government is seriously considering acquiring the fishery? It's very good, first class. We think it's about time for the state, and we want to see the rest of the fisheries taken over on the same basis. But I wouldn't like to think that the government is going to have to be bled f f uh, on, this, on this line. I mean, a quarter of a million pounds is a lot of money nowadays. Cause it is going to be a gamble. It's a gamble as far as it, how do we know whether we're going to have any salmon next year or any other year. Uh, but with careful management and careful planning, it can be done. Brian Casman of the Galway and Darren Fishermen's Association. Now the price changes on the stock exchange. Bank of Ireland, 323, up 3. Barra Milling, 75, up 2. PJ Carroll, 89, down 1. Clondalkin Mills Group, 67, up 2. Fitzwilton Limited, 35, up 1. Chanel Limited, 37, down 2. Ranks Ireland Limited, 50, down 10. Jefferson Smurford Group, 168, up 1. Swan Rhine International, 9.5, up a half. The main points of the news. At the final session of their meeting in Brussels this morning, the EEC heads of government resolved disputes about the regional fund and how much each country will contribute to the community's running costs next year. This country will get £24 million out of the regional fund, nearly twice what we're getting now, but we'll have to pay £44.5 million towards the running costs, £20.5 million more than we're paying now. Britain will also be paying more. The meeting ended just over an hour ago. At the fishery talks, also in Brussels, Further efforts are being made to get a compromise. Irish officials said Mr Lenehan is still seeking an, ex an exclusive coastal zone of 50 miles. There had been reports that he had prepared a proposal for less than this, if it would mean a breakthrough. In Belfast, three soldiers were injured fighting a blaze which threatened the officers of the newsletter newspaper. The fire started after two bombs went off in an adjoining warehouse. The fire is now under control. Two soldiers were killed when their fire engine crashed near Manchester this morning. They were from Northern Ireland. 
They were Charles George McLaughlin, aged 22, from Limavady, County Derry, and Hugh Thompson, aged 25, and married with two children from Newtonards, County Down. The weather, rather cold and mainly cloudy, with rain or drizzle. That's the news. This is Mike Burns. <laughs>